Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 7. It's entitled, Four Beasts, Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man. Um, you can find Daniel chapter 7 on page 696 in your uh, Bible, if you want to grab a Bible from the, the chair in front of you. Uh, or you can follow along in your bulletin. Um, it's printed in there uh, as, as well. So we're going to look through the entire chapter of Daniel chapter 7. We've come. So this is pretty much the, the turning point of uh, the book of Daniel. Um, I'm just going to slide this back so that I don't... I'm afraid that if I move it down, it might not be able to go back up very conveniently. So, uh, da- yeah, Dan- we hit a turning point, right? Daniel, uh, 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. The first six are... Well, the fir- so, the, you know, Daniel 7 is where it gets weird. So the first uh, six chapters of Daniel are narrative. They're stories. Um, the, the break between Daniel 6 and 7 is where every preacher regrets his decision for having decided to go through the book of Daniel. Because the first six are like, well, the first six are probably, they're, they're similar to Genesis in terms of how they preach. There's stories, there's characters, there's narrative, there's, there's tension, there's conflict, resolution. It's like, a, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it preaches itself, Daniel 1 through 6, like Genesis. Daniel 7 through 12 is not narrative, it's, um, it's apocalyptic literature, like Revelation. So, uh, oddly enough, first book versus the, the last book would probably be relevant comps. But, so, uh, apocalyptic literature, dreams, visions, prophecy, symbolism. Um, and, again, uh, you know, no one, it, it's difficult to interpret. No one agrees on the, on the interpretations. And so, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's 7 to 12 can be a little bit... A little bit difficult to, to, to understand and interpret, but we're going to try our, our best. And so uh, Daniel chapters 1 through 6, we saw Daniel and his buddies in the royal court uh, in Babylon. We saw um, uh, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about a big uh, image statue idol that uh, represents the kingdoms uh, of, of man that are coming uh, in the future. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace. Daniel chapter 4, the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall, and then the death of uh, Belshazzar, the king of, of Babylon. Daniel, Daniel chapter 6 last week was Daniel in the, the lion's den. So that's where we've come and where we're going to land today in Daniel chapter 7. Um, so again, from, na- from here on out, it's uh, less uh, stories that Daniel is telling about himself that he experienced and more recounting of dreams and visions that Daniel has that he writes down. And we're kind of seeing some glimpses into, uh, in, into Daniel and, and the, the visions that he's, that he's having. And so, uh, yeah, today we're going to see... Similar to Daniel chapter 2, this dream represents the succession of four different human kingdoms. So that's similar to what we saw with the statue in Daniel 2, followed by uh, God's eternal kingdom that's established and kind of uh, set up, which is also similar to what we saw in Daniel chapter 2. So a lot of similarities between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, much different in terms of the actual symbols and the imagery, but what they are intending to represent is is similar, if not uh, identical. And so uh, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to work through uh, Daniel 7 together. So let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come 
before you this morning, asking your blessing on our time and your word together. We pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would speak through me. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word, your inerrant, infallible, authoritative, perfect, divine, eternal word to encourage us and to edify us and to to strengthen us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head uh, that, as he lay in his bed. And he wrote them down and told the sum of the matter. So, um, one through, Daniel 1 through 6 was all in chronological order. Um, but starting, starting here in, verse seven, or in chapter 7, it's not. Now we kind of are going to insert, depending on uh, time stamps and kind of context clues that we see, we're going to insert it somewhere in there. So Daniel chapter 7 happened to, to Daniel privately, somewhere between Daniel chapter 4, which is when Nebuchadnezzar was still the king of Babylon, and Daniel chapter 5, which is when Belshazzar had become, and then would, would uh, later that night... Uh, become the king of Babylon, and then later that night uh, die. And so somewhere between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel 5 is where the vision that he sees in Daniel 7 is when that that took place. And so Daniel has this dream. It says he wrote wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So I had a a roommate in college who kept a notebook by his bed, and he would, uh, so he could write down his dreams. And he like so, and I always thought that was really weird. But then, I, whenever I like would think about it, I was like, "He's like, well, do you remember any of your dreams?" And I was like, "Now that you mention it, no. <laughs> like, I remember them for like one second, one minute after I wake up, and then they're just gone out of my brain forever." And he's like, "See, that's why I write them down." So anyways, apparently, Daniel did that. That's like a regular thing, I guess. It's been dating back to the sixth century BC. People writing down their, their dreams. So Daniel declared, "I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven." were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lot, so there's, yeah, lots of, lots of vivid imagery here. Uh, I've, I've seen some, some, uh, some artwork that kids draw during my sermons, and so I'll, uh, I'll, get, I'll give you a lollipop or something. If you, if whatever kid has the best drawings of what we're about to see in the next, you know, five or ten verses, I'll get, I'll get you a, a fun, fun surprise. Um, Four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, was like a bear. But this bear was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, like a robot. It devoured and it broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came one among them another, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which 
three of the first horns were, were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is weird stuff. Yeah, so it gets, it gets, it gets very strange. Verse 9, as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out before him, and thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." So this is seemingly a picture of God himself seated on his throne in heaven, his judgment throne. Fire, the throne is engulfed in flames. There's, there's fire coming out from him, a fire presumably of judgment as he sits in judgment and the books of judgment are open before everyone. So we've got the four beasts, lion, wings, bear with ribs, uh, leopard with the four heads, beast with iron teeth and tin horns. You have the Ancient of Days on his throne, surrounded by worshipers and servants. Verse 11, uh, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So now we're back to that little horn that displaced three of the ten horns. And he's speaking. And as I looked, the beast upon which that horn was, right, one, uh, was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, the lion, the bear, the, the leopard, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So everyone's worshiping uh, around uh, God, but one person is not, and it's that weird horn that's on the fourth beast who is not worshiping God, but he's speaking out, uh, you know, blasphemies, presumably, against God. Verse 13, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came uh, one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. So he, the Son of Man, came into the presence of he, the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, right? The Ancient of Days gives dominion and glory and a kingdom to the Son of Man that all people and nations and languages should serve Him, the the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom uh, shall not ever be destroyed. So beasts, Ancient of Days, on His throne, judging everything. Horn is speaking out. The beast that the horn is on is killed. Then there's the, another figure, the Son of Man, who comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days on the clouds. The Ancient of Days gives authority to the Son of Man. The Son of Man reigns over uh, everyone and everything uh, with, alongside, and on behalf of the Ancient of Days. Right? Uh, everyone, up until that point, everyone is worshiping the Ancient of Days. Now everyone is worshiping the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days t- together. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me, right? I was freaking out. And I I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of of this, right? So presumably some 
uh, sort of angel that Daniel is seeing in this vision, and he just walks right up to him and says, what's, uh, what's going on? What's all this about? And he told me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17, these four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So that's kind of start to finish, right? The, the synopsis, right? The, just the, the broad strokes of this whole vision is that you've got four kings followed by the sons of God who are going to uh, inherit the kingdom of God and possess it forever and, and ever, right? So if you remember back to Daniel chapter 2, it was the statue with the head of gold, the chest of silver, the thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, feet of, of uh, iron and clay. And, and the, the interpretation that Daniel gave to King Nebuchadnezzar there was this is four kingdoms, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And it's followed by a stone that's kind of cut from a mountain, but it's not cut by human hands. So it's got this divine origin to it. And this stone comes and crushes the statue, shatters it to dust. It blows away like chaff in the wind. All of the human power and kingdoms and glory that had been amassed, right? That's all comes to nothing. It's all worthless. But what, what remains is the kingdom of God, the, the stone that's not cut by human hands. It grows into a mountain and then it fills the entire earth and it is there forever. So, so that vision in Daniel 2 is the same as this vision here in Daniel 7. Four kings, four kingdoms, followed by the eternal kingdom of God that displaces them and then establishes itself and, and remains forever. Verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. He was exceedingly terrifying. Its teeth were iron and its claws were bronze, and it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. I was was curious about the ten horns that were on its head, the other horn that came up before which the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And I looked, and this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days uh, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and then the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So he's like... um, He's like, I get a lot of the, like, I'm remembering, right? This, this, what you're telling me about this dream reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that I told him miraculously and that I interpreted for him. But this fourth beast is just, is weird and scary and I, I don't really know what to make of it. And so what's, what's the deal with that? And what's the deal with the horn, the ten horns and then the eleventh horn on it? And he says, verse 23, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth which shall devour, or which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three of those kings, and he shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, And he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed in the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So, right, the guy says, 
If that fourth beast is freaking you out, it's for good reason. He's strange and scary and kind of uh, freaky. He's different than the other ones. He's more powerful. He's scarier. He blasphemes against God. He defies God. He persecutes and does violence to the people of God. And God is going to come and destroy him because of it. So that's, <coughs> that's the vision Daniel has. And that's the interpretation of the vision that Daniel receives from uh, the angelic or the heavenly being that he uh, meets in the, the vision. I told you, things get weird starting in Daniel 7. So, what does all this mean? What's it telling us? What's the application for us as Christians today? It's worth, it's worth noting that um, there are a number of different theologians who interpret this text any number of different ways, along with a bunch of other texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament along with it. Um, Right? A lot of them have varying degrees of specificity, right? kind of how into the weeds they get with the details of uh, this chapter and kind of what they all represent, past, present, future, that kind of thing. So we'll start with just a good rule of thumb. <clears throat> good rule of thumb, whenever you're interpreting Scripture, whenever you're interpreting any, uh, any document, really, but particularly the old documents, ancient documents, and particularly Scripture, is uh, that our, like, the... the confidence that we have in our convictions, the certainty that we carry around should be analogous to, it should be informed by the clarity of what we're reading, right? The things that are more clear in Scripture should engender more stronger convictions, more certainty on our part, things that are less clear we should be, have ideas about, sure, have beliefs about, but we should hold those beliefs not quite as tightly as maybe the things that are more, you know, clear, right? Um, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, for it's by grace that you've been saved uh, through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's, it's a gift from God so that no man should, should boast, right? Uh, the, we, from that verse, and a bajillion others, but from Ephesians 2, we get the doctrine of justification by faith. We're saved not by works. We're saved by trusting in Jesus, by God's grace in our lives. It's very clear. It's not, it's very, it's not ambiguous. It's very specific. So we have a high degree of clarity. So we have a high degree of certainty, a strong conviction, right? I'd, I'd die on that hill. If this church stopped believing the doctrine of justification by faith, I'd have to quit. I'd have to go find another, uh, find another em- employer. And so, so lot, high, degree of cert- high degree of clarity engenders a high degree of certainty, a stronger conviction. But less clarity should beget less certainty, uh, convictions that aren't held quite as strongly, right? Um, I mean, any of them, right? Like, uh, or uh, miraculous gifts, uh, prophecy and healing and speaking in tongues, are these things, uh, do they exist in the church today? Or were they only for a time? Did they, did they cease after the, the canon was written, after the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible were written? Different people have different ideas on them. And people can make a case either way. You can make a case that uh, the, the miraculous gifts are for today. They do continue today. You can also make a case that they, that they don't. Either way, um, it's not quite as clear as, say, the doctrine of justification by faith. And so, have your beliefs, have your opinions, ha- and, and go ahead and hold them as strongly as you want. But, but since there's less clarity on that, we should have less certainty and our convictions should be just held a little bit more loosely. We should be a little bit uh, more willing to entertain 
uh, other thoughts on something like, yeah, the, I mean, in, you, I mean, all of them, right? Um, you know, what should you read or watch on TV or eat or drink, alcohol, right? Are you allowed to work on Sundays? You know, um, how's your, you know, women working outside the home, education of children, right? Like there's a bajillion like things in the Christian life, all of which... <clears throat> like, are informed by Scripture, and all of which, like, a good, godly, healthy Christian is going to be going to God's Word, and he's going to be developing principles for how to live his life and structure their family and things like that from God's Word. But um, there's a lot of ambiguity with a lot of those things, because we're trying to apply God's Word from thousands of years ago to the 21st century life that we live in now. And so, um, so the more clarity that we have, the stronger we hold our convictions, the less clarity we have, the more ambiguity we have, the more that we kind of have convictions, but just keep them in tension with the reality that we could, we could certainly be wrong. So with all that, that, that kind of, with that rule of thumb, I would say that much of how we interpret Daniel 7, and particularly the details of Daniel 7, and the horns, and the beasts, and the, you know, like, that, that would, that, it's very ambiguous, it's it's uh, it's it's we do it's I it's it's difficult to say for certain what any of these things are, and so we should by all means like read it, read books about it, enjoy it, have your ideas about what you think it is. But I uh, don't personally have uh, a ton of like my my views on how to interpret Daniel seven are not nearly as angular and as codified and as certain as something like the doctrine of justification by. Uh, faith. But I'll try my best to represent what some of the different people think uh, the, this, this chapter is talking about and kind of try to tease out some applications that I think are fairly unavoidable and, and kind of undeniable that, that are here in this, this text for us. And so one thing that pretty much everyone that I read, um, one thing that, uh, that's just in common pr- on everyone is that whatever you think the the stat, whatever you think the four kingdoms are of the statue in uh, Daniel 2, you think that the beasts are that in Daniel 7, right? No one thinks, like, and so there's differences on that. And, and even that, we talked about it a few weeks ago. That gets back to um, when you think the book of Daniel was written, which even that, there's, like, controversy on, right? So um, the thing with uh, the book of Daniel... Uh, so most scholars, in fact, I think all scholars that have a high view of Scripture, like I do, um, date the book of Daniel to somewhere in the 6th century B.C. Because the book of Daniel says it was written by Daniel, who says he was alive then. So, so if, you, if you take the Bible at its word and have a high view of Scripture, then you think that the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century because that's when it says that it was uh, written. But the catch is, and why a lot of people don't think that, is because the book of Daniel describes uh, here, but also in other places, and sometimes in very vivid detail, events that are going to take place centuries after that. Right? It describes events in the kingdoms that are coming uh, after Babylon in, in the, the centuries following uh, when Daniel would have been in the royal courts here. And so a lot of uh, scholars who don't have a high view of Scripture say, well, then obviously it just wasn't written. The book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C. and not the 6th century B.C. Because how could he be talking with such great detail about events in the 4th or 5th or 3rd century B.C.? 
unless it was written after them. And so, uh, so some guys date it as late as the second century uh, BC. Of course, the response from the people who have a high view of Scripture, like I do, would say, well, it's not that hard for God to say what's going to happen in the future because he's God and he's sovereign and he knows everything past, present, and future. So, um, you know, it's not, you know, if you, you'll, you'll end up late dating Daniel if you don't believe that God knows the future, or if you don't believe that God is able to reveal the future. But if you do, then you have no problem uh, dating Daniel in the sixth century. But if you date Daniel uh, in the second century, then you're like, okay, uh, who are these four kingdoms? Well, uh, Babylon, certainly, um, is that's the one that, that Daniel is under their, their oppression. But then whoever, whoever guy that was writing in the sixth century, second century that was pretending to be Daniel writing in the 6th century, well, he could have written about uh, Medo-Persia, like the next kind of kingdom uh, that came after Babylon, because that would have been past tense for him. He could have even written about Greece, uh, because that was like past-slash-present tense for him. But that's about it. You can't really put... Like, if you're you're a a person with a lower view of Scripture that thinks that the the book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century... Uh, then you can't really put Rome in there because Rome hasn't taken place yet. And so you've got four kingdoms, and so they'll say, okay, well, it was Babylon, and then we split Medo-Persia up into two, so Media and Persia, and then Greece. So that's how some guys say that's the four segments of the statue in Daniel 2, that's the four beasts in Daniel 7. But again, the, the you know folks who think that Daniel was written in the 6th century, they're like, well, it's kind of a, it's pretty remarkable that that they got any of them, so you might as well throw Rome in there because, uh, you know, because, because all of them are future tense for someone like Daniel writing in the 6th century. So that's, that's kind of the, my, my take on it, I think, is that uh, I think that the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century, and because of that, then uh, I have no problem including Rome along with Greece and Medo-Persia, and it seems to make the most sense to say of the four kingdoms, you've got Babylon and then the medo Persian Empire, kind of a hybrid empire together, and then uh, ancient Greece, and then uh, ancient Rome, the Roman Empire. Those are kind of the, the four. So that's kind of what we'll assume for our uh, purposes here. So, and the reason why, we'll see kind of as we look through these, if we start back at uh, chapter 7, verse 4, uh, we'll, kind of, we'll kind of just flip around, and so it might be, you might not be able to keep up with all of them, Jesse, and if so, just follow in your, your Bibles. But, um, so we start with the four great beasts. The first is like a lion that had eagle's wings. So strong, powerful, majestic, right? Fast, right? So, so, you know, this kind of describes Babylon in its power and in its majesty and in its beauty. Probably describes Nebuchadnezzar in particular as a very powerful, impressive, majestic king. But then it says its wings were plucked off. So this, like, beautiful, majestic, powerful is, is humiliated. Similar to what we read uh, in Daniel chapter 4, when King Nebuchadnezzar was uh, humiliated, right? He's walking around on top of his uh, palace, right? And he says, you know, man, this is great Babylon that I've built by the power of my own hands for my glory and my majesty. And God immediately casts him out into the wilderness, and he's walking around like a beast in the forest with dew on his back and his hair's growing out, his fingernails, right? Like he's gone completely mad. And then uh, after um, some, some period of time, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God the Most High and his sanity is restored to him. That's all in Daniel 4. So this lion has his wings plucked off, that's humiliation, but then he's lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. That's his restoration. So Daniel 
7 verse 4, right, the mind of a man was given to this, uh, this formerly beast, bestial creature, creature. So that seems to align with Daniel chapter 4, just kind of in a representative fashion. Next, we've got the bear, um, which is analogous to the chest. So the, so, uh, the, the lion is analogous to the head of gold, which represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The bear is analogous to the chest and arms of silver, um, which uh, I think refers to the Medo-Persian Empire. One reason why we think that is the... So the Medo-Persian Empire was this hybrid empire. It was kind of started as, as, the, as media and was then kind of uh, overtaken by Persia, and it kind of formed this dualistic, but Persia was kind of the dominant force in that empire. And so here's a bear that's raised up on one side. So there, there's one, one side of this hybrid empire is more powerful, stronger than the other. Persia is more powerful than, than media. It had three ribs in his mouth. I mean, who knows, right? But the, I mean, there were three significant military victories that the Medo-Persian empire, uh, you know, accomplished on its rise to power. Uh, Lydia and... Um, Let's see, Lydia and Greece, uh, no, I'm sorry, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt were kind of these three big military battery, military victories that the Medo-Persian Empire accomplished. But then it still had uh, a rise and devour much flesh. It still had ambition to, to expand its borders even further and continue. As I looked after this, behold, another, like a leopard with four wings... Uh, of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads. And so here's this leopard. Dominion was given to it. So if this represents ancient Greece, then it would seem to track, it would seem to align, because Greece, dominion was given to the, to the you know, to ancient Greece. It expanded its, I mean, under uh, Alexander the Great, uh, ancient Greece expanded its borders pretty much further than any empire ever had. I mean, pretty much to all the known world. Um, one historian said, uh, of Alexander the Great, uh, that when he um, he saw the breadth and the, the the just how how far his domain, how far the borders of his kingdom stretched, he saw that and he wept because there was no more space in all the world to conquer. So uh, Alexander the Great has has tons of dominion, and um, when Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, his kingdom was divided into four uh, segments. And there were four rulers that kind of uh, came along under him, um, you know, ruling in Greece and Macedon and in uh, Thrace and Asia Minor and uh, Mesopotamia and Persia and then uh, Egypt and Palestine, kind of four uh, segments that were each ruled by four different people, which seems to track with this beast that has four heads. And so presumably they represent four king four rulers that come along after Alexander the Great to take uh, his, his kingdom on. And then you've got the fourth beast, who's terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong and crushes everything in his path, which is analogous to the legs of iron uh, from Daniel 2 that says they just crushed everything and destroyed everything in their, their path. This, this beast has iron teeth and it just smashes and destroys everything. It's got ten horns, and then the eleventh horn comes along and uproots three of the ten until, verse 21 says that, um, that that one horn will war with the saints and prevail over them until the Ancient of Days comes and, and judges 
him. And verse 23 says that um, that, that beast is uh, a kingdom, right? The ten horns are the ten kings in the kingdom. The eleventh horn is a king that defeats three of them and then speaks out against God and persecutes the people of God. And this is where it kind of gets, um, lots of people have different interpretations about what we're talking about here. Um, so some say, that's just Rome, right? That's, that's uh, legs of iron, right? Feet of iron and clay, I- iron beast, that's, that's talking about Rome. Rome was the most ruthless, I mean, of all the empires we've discussed, Rome was the most ruthless of all of them, persecuted and oppressed the people of God, Jewish people, and later uh, Christians, all that tracks, ten horns. Um, there was a b- bunch of C- a bunch of emperors, a bunch of Caesars in Rome, uh, there was 12 that were arguably are kind of the most powerful and most influential. And there was a biography written about them uh, in the uh, first century called the 12, called the 12 Caesars. Um, and so of those 12 Caesars, two of them had very short reigns that only lasted a few months. And the other 10 had longer reigns. And so it could be, I don't know, but it could be that the 10 horns on this fourth beast represent those ten of the most powerful Caesars, emperors that would rule over the, the uh, empire of Rome. Certainly possible. That's for the eleventh horn who takes out three of them. Um, again, it's, uh, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Some um, scholars think that the eleventh horn is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, who was not an emperor of Rome. He was a king in Greece. So, it doesn't, I mean, if you think those ten horns are Roman emperors, then you can't necessarily think that the eleventh horn is the king of Greece because he came earlier, but who knows, right? But Antiochus Epiphanes um, was just known to be just, I mean, incredibly ruthless uh, and, and killed a ton of Jewish people, forced them to worship uh, idols, and when they didn't, just slaughtered them ruthlessly. And so uh, he, of all of the historical figures, maybe fits the bill for this 11th, for this kind of small horn. And he kind of had a partnership with the, the, the fledgling kind of, kind of on its way Roman uh, Empire. And so that could certainly be the, the case. Some scholars don't uh, understand, uh, they just kind of think all of these, you know, like the ten horns, maybe they represent those ten Caesars, maybe not, the eleventh horn, but all of the horns and kind of especially that one little horn just represent all of Rome and all of the Roman empires and all of the, like just an embodiment of all of the worst characteristics, their idolatry, their pride, their self-exaltation, their violence, their persecution of the people of God. So all those details, we can't really know for sure, but they represent various elements of the Roman Empire. Some say, yeah, sure, they represent various elements of the Roman Empire, but they also represent just human rebellion. Just, I mean, you know, kingdoms since the Roman Empire, those horns represent uh, human kings and kingdoms that, that are opposed to God and that do not submit to God and do not worship God and they oppress and they do violence to the people of God. Whenever a Christian anywhere suffers persecution, they are effectively experiencing, you know, these, these horns. They're speaking out against the Most High and that are wearing out the saints of the Most High. That could certainly be the, the cases as well. Um, some theologians think that all of this, the horns and the fourth beast, um, is not 
it's referring to things that are still in the future. So not past tense Roman Empire, not symbolic of all of human rebellion of all time, but to specific events that have not yet taken place, but that will in the future. And this is where it kind of gets pretty in, in the weeds with stuff. But I'll do my best to represent, just to, to kind of summarize it for you. The idea is the lion is clearly Babylon. Uh, Medo, the bear is Medo-Persia. The leopard is Greece. But this freakish fourth beast uh, is not, it's kind of Rome, but not all Rome, because it sounds worse than Rome was, right? As bad as Rome was, this beast sounds worse. And some of the details are so specific that we can't find perfect analogs for them in Roman history. So it has to be some future event that has not yet taken place. And so here's kind of the, here's how they sketch it out. They say, uh, All of human history happened exactly like Daniel 7 says it would, right up until the Roman Empire. And then seemingly, Daniel 7 seems to think that right during the Roman Empire is when God is going to return and set up his eternal kingdom. But that didn't happen because we're not in, like, we're, we're 20 centuries later after all of that. So what happened? And the idea is that, uh, there's kind of this, like, parenthetical season built in there. So you've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, but then, uh, then during the Roman Empire is when Jesus the Messiah comes and presents himself. But he's killed. He's put on a cross. And so the idea is, at that moment, like, the, the whole plan, it's like, um, like the snooze button was hit, or, you know, like the... the like the batteries were taken out of the clock. And so there's just like this pause. And now there's this unanticipated, unexpected period of time that we're still in called the church age, during which God is going to open the kingdom up to the Gentiles, to us, to the Gentiles, instead of having it be exclusive for the Jewish people. And so you've got this, this, uh, this kind of unended, you know, this, this indefinite amount of time called the church age, where God will save all of his elect Gentiles, at the end of which, once the last elect person is saved, then the rapture will happen. And then, like, everyone who believes in God is, is kind of whisked up and away. And then um, things pick right back up where they left off in Daniel 7. Like, the, after the rapture, there's this seven-year tribulation period, which is really uh, kind of comes right on the heels of what was happening in Rome before Jesus was killed. In this seven-year tribulation period, and that's where you're going to see the emergence of this, uh, this like, Rome 2.0, right? Like, like the, the fourth beast is both Rome in the ancient world, but then also this, like, second version of Rome that's going to come uh, in the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period. Uh, and then the ten horns presumably are ten nations. There will be this ten-nation, like, uh, coalition, that kind of all come together in rebellion against God and in persecution of God's people. And then of those ten leaders of those ten nations, three of them are going to be supplanted by some other guy that comes in called the Antichrist. And he's going to come in and kind of uh, get rid of three of those guys, and he's going to rule over everything, speak out against God, persecute the people of God, and it will happen for the, latter, the, the last half of that seven-year tribulation. So that's why it said a time and times and half a time in verse 25. So a year plus two years plus a half a year equals three and a half years. So that means the second half of this seven-year tribulation period. At the end of that, then uh, Jesus comes back 
and establishes his, uh, his kingdom. So that's kind of the, the tentative sketch of how people kind of, right, they read Daniel 7, they, they uh, you know, situate it next to Daniel 9 that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, next to a lot of things that we read in First and Second Thessalonians and Revelation, and they say that's what it looks like. There's the Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, pause, church age, Gentiles, rapture, unpause, tribulation, Rome 2.0, ten nation coalition, antichrist, persecution, Jesus returns and sets up his, his kingdom. It's far from clear. There's a lot of guesswork, um, but that's kind of the idea. Full disclosure, not, not super convinced. Um, I personally am not super convinced of all. I think that it's perfectly plausible. It's perfectly viable. If, I, if that happens, I'm going to be like, great. I didn't say it wouldn't. Um, right? If, if I die and then it happens, I'm going to be like, well, hey, listen, I didn't, you know, I wasn't like saying it would, but I didn't say it wouldn't. Maybe it happens that way. So I'm not, not entirely convinced. It seems like there's just a lot of specificity and a lot of certainty that's given to a lot of details that frankly are just weird and ambiguous and it's tough to know what exactly they, they are. And so I'm not sure that the whole rapture, tribulation, antichrist, mark of the beast stuff is all going to go down exactly uh, like that. I probably lean more toward the guys who say all these weird details that the horns and the fourth beast um, are representative, one, of Rome, which in a lot of ways did embody a lot of what we see there, but two, just of human rebellion against God, idolatry, persecution, violence, bloodlust, infighting, all of that stuff we saw in Rome. You can watch you know, Spartacus or whatever, you can see it there. But all of it happens, you know, in human kingdoms to today. And so I don't have a ton of certainty or super strong convictions about anything with regards to the end times that we read in this passage, except because um, what, what I think is, so like all that stuff, I think there's a lot of ambiguity, Antichrist and all, but what there's, what there's a lot of clarity on here is verses um, 9 and 10 and verses 13 and 14. Those texts appear to be very clear and, and not really that ambiguous, and those are specifically the Ancient of Days, seated on his throne, surrounded by a kingdom full of worshipers, and then later the Son of Man, who is brought into his presence, presented uh, before him. He is the Ancient of Days, gives authority and power and glory and dominion of the kingdom to the Son of Man. Right? I mean, a cursory reading of the New Testament makes it clear that we're looking at God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God the Son, the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite title that he used to refer to himself in all four Gospels. There's a, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sure, right? Those are very, but if, if there's something that's, that's across Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you're like, wow, let's, let's pay attention to this. All four Gospels, Jesus consistently, frequently refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he uses language like uh, coming on the clouds. And he uh, uses, you know, he, he draws from Daniel 7. And so the Ancient of Days is clearly referring to God the Father seated on his throne. The Son of Man is clearly referring to Jesus Christ, which means that they line up perfectly with what we read in Psalm 2 where God the Father says to the Son, he says, you are my son. Today I will give you 
the nations as your inheritance. I will give you the ends of the earth as your possession. This kind of inter-Trinitarian dialogue between the Father and the Son. I'm going to give you dominion. I'm going to give you the kingdom. You are going to rule and reign with me on my behalf. Psalm 2 and Daniel 7 are talking about the same thing. Same thing with uh, Psalm 110. The Lord, that's God the Father, says to my Lord, that's God the Son, the Messiah, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. So Daniel 7, kind of God the Father, God the Son, Ancient of Days, Son of Man, ruling together, Father giving authority, giving glory to the the Son is exactly what we see in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So I don't get hung up on a lot of the theological minutia of, you know, when's the rapture going to happen? What's going to happen before it? What's going to happen after it? What does your rapture chart look like? It doesn't look like mine. Uh, you know, I'm not, not super into that, because I, I don't think that's the main point of Daniel 7. I think the main point of Daniel 7 is not specific in the weeds minutia about the end times. I think the main point of Daniel 7 is that there will be uh, some succession of human kingdoms marked by rebellion against God, marked by persecution of the people of God. But God wins. When, when, all, when all the dust settles, when all of that is said and done, God himself comes back and establishes his kingdom. He'll be seated on his throne, bursting with fire of judgment and fury. And, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will, will be brought into his presence. And God the Father will give all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go now and, and make disciples of all nations. God the Father gives the authority and the glory to God the Son, and they will rule together with God the Holy Spirit, with the people of God who have trusted in Jesus and had their sins forgiven, right? They will rule together forever and ever. The dominion of King Jesus will be an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. The kingdom of King Jesus will be a kingdom that will never, ever be destroyed. That is the, the, main, uh, the main theme and what is clear in Daniel 7. So God will save his people. God will will destroy his enemies. Human pride will not stand forever. It has a shelf life. And then God is going to put an end to it. God the Son, the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus has come. Jesus has died on the cross. He has satisfied the wrath of God so that the people of God can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God forever. And now because of all of that, we know the end of the story, right? We, we Christians alive right now, today, 2023, we can, we're in the middle of the story. And that would be a, 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 a despair, that would be a depressing it would be reason for despair if you're in the middle of a story that looks like the story we're in now without knowing the end. But Christians know the end of the story, which gives us confidence and assurance so that we can persevere and walk through the middle of the story, right? Because God is sovereign. God is in charge. God has saved us at the cross. God is saving us through the power of his Holy Spirit, and God will save us. 
at the end of all things. All we have to do is trust in Him and, and obey Him and walk with Him. So, Daniel 7 reminds us that God is in control of human history. Even in the midst of uncertainty, we can place our hope and our faith in God, knowing that he's working out his purposes. Daniel 7 encourages us and empowers us to persevere through suffering. All the earthly kingdoms and all the earthly kings are temporary. They will eventually be put down and judged. And so we can find encouragement to persevere in our faith, knowing that the Son of Man has come, he's accomplished our salvation, and he is going to return on the clouds. The promises of God are going to be fulfilled. God's judgment will come, and his kingdom will prevail. Then verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So I, I heard it. I heard about everything that is coming. It was really uh, scary and anxiety-provoking. But I received it, and I kept it, and I pondered it like Mary in, in you know, Luke 2, right? She took these things in and pondered them in her heart, right? And so... so God is calling us to, just like Daniel did, just like Mary did, right, to, to hear the word of God concerning uh, what is happening and what ultimately will happen, to hear it, to receive it, to take it in, to ponder it in our hearts concerning his sovereignty, his judgment of his enemies, his salvation of his people through the gospel of his son. God is calling us to hear it, receive it, ponder it, meditate on it. And then walk with Christ in the fellowship of his church until he returns. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the person and work of Jesus, for the sufficiency of his death and resurrection. We thank you that even though we are currently living under the rule of human kings and kingdoms, many of which rebel against you and and do violence to your people, we thank you that we can know and trust that it will not be this way forever. That you are sovereign over those kings and those kingdoms. You are sovereign over all of human history and you are bringing it toward its final end the return of Christ, God's final judgment of his enemies, and his final salvation of his people, when we will enjoy your presence and live under your righteous rule forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.